Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Tom McNamara, PhD. Tom is a professor specializing in supply chain management and information systems. He's also an engineer and a union delegate. He's coming to us live from Rennes, France, but he's also spent some time in Dublin, Ireland, and he's originally from New York, New York. I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you are uh, you're in France, but you are an American citizen, born and raised in New York. Is that right? Yeah, I'm originally from New York City. Uh, lived there for the first uh, 36 years of my life, and the last 10 years were in Manhattan. And then 2001, three weeks before 9-11, I moved uh, to Ireland. And I spent 12 months in Ireland uh, studying to be a high school uh, teacher. And then in 2002, moved to France, town of Rennes, it's in Brittany, in the western part of France. Taught English for eight years. And at the same time, I did a PhD. And then in 2010, I got a permanent uh, teaching position at the local uh, business school. So, yeah, I've been in higher education for about 20 years teaching, doing some research. And then in 2014, I joined the local union at our school because a good friend and a good colleague was fired, got dismissed. We thought the dismissal was, you know, undeserved, maybe deserved a warning. And I joined the local uh, union in 2014. And then in 2016, I was elected uh, union delegate. So I've been the union delegate for the local union at our school for the last uh, seven years. I would like to get to some stuff, maybe the differences, you know, compare and contrast a little bit. United States, uh, the society, the culture, the politics versus Europe. But let's do a little bit more on your educational background. Pretty uh, impressive here. You have a diploma in secondary education, which you talked about uh, your time in Dublin, Ireland. Also have a MBA. Um, you got that in France. You started off a Bachelor of Science in Economics, uh, City University of New York, um, in, in New York City. You also have an uh, uh, Industrial Management degree, and then your PhD from the Open University in Rennes um, School of Business there. So maybe talk about your, your background a little bit, um, what's kind of your area of expertise you spent a lot of time in education pretty much your entire life, right? Yeah. You've been in the educational system yeah. for, for a long time and, and now working well, in it. Well, I mean, as, as the joke goes, 
a PhD is the highest form of brainwashing you can undergo. It yep. means you're so brainwashed, they let you brainwash, you know, other people. Yep. So, I mean, my area of expertise would be, you know, industrial management, uh, industrial operations. I worked for the electric company in New York City for 16 years. So, you know, I have like an industrial background, bit of an engineering background. And uh, yeah, so um, around 2005, I started studying for a PhD. And what happens when you study for a PhD, it's, it's, it's basically like doing the longest book report of your life. I mean, it's just, you know, you're just constantly immersed in it. It just every day feels like Sunday, that night when you were a kid and you had to do that book report that you didn't want to do. But at the same time, you have a lot of freedom. You know, you can go down rabbit holes. And I just started, you know, hanging out on YouTube, watching Noam Chomsky videos, uh, Norman Finkelstein, Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn was still alive at the time. So, you know, you just start to get another, you know, perspective. And then, as you said, the cross-cultural differences, I have to be really honest. When I moved to France, I was very, very disillusioned. I mean, growing up as a kid, I heard, oh, France, you know, the unions run the country and the workers are united. And I mean, France is a capitalist country. It belongs to NATO. You know, you follow orders or, you know, you're out. And I've Yeah, you're getting lines, so, right? The United States yeah. runs NATO. And if you're in NATO, yeah. you, fall, you fall in line with the godfather. You fall in line with the master or else, right? And a lot of I mean, times, I'm, I'm a big Chomsky proponent as well. And he talked about, like, the people with the most education are those that are most indoctrinated. Um, but a yeah. lot of times when the United States, like, bombs a country, you know, or, or you know, makes a military target, you know, uh, a lot of the times it's sending a message to its enemies, right? But it's also sending a message to its allies, like, hey, you cross yeah. us. This is going to happen to you too, you know what I mean? And, I mean, so now the French, you know, get insulted cheese eating surrender monkeys because they didn't go to war in 2003 yeah but they backed every single other war they were there in afghanistan they were there in the first war uh, against iraq they bombed the hell out of libya they bombed uh syria so i mean you know one out of the last six wars you know france didn't go with the united states but like you said i mean they they follow orders and I've seen the progression in the last 20 years. When I first moved here, George Bush II was still president. People were upset. There was this anti-American, um, you know, sentiment. And then over the last 20 years, I mean, they really just fell in line. With, with de Gaulle, there was still a little bit of resistance. In 1966, France withdrew, I think, from the NATO hierarchy, the NATO command structure. So there was some resistance, there was some independence, but in the last 20 years, I mean, they've just walked in lockstep. You know, Ukraine, Gaza, you know, they, they take their orders from the master. So I have to say, I was kind of, you know, disillusioned by what I saw in France. And hey, man, you know, you got to get up in the morning, you got to go to work, there's a boss, the guy tells you what to do. If you don't play ball, you're on the outs. And plus, I've never seen so many people get fired in France than anywhere else. You know, they can fire you for absolutely no reason, no justification, and you don't get your job back. If you go to court, you can win a cash settlement, but you never get your job back. 
when I was in New and, York. And sometimes you get blackballed too, though. When you take on your employer, yeah. you win a you win a lawsuit. You know, all of a sudden you're on a list somewhere. You know what I mean? It's I mean it's a relatively small you know country. So I remember in New York City, you know, the, com- the company I worked for was unionized. Guys would get fired. They'd go to arbitration. They'd get their job back. So at least you know there was some quote unquote justice. But here. So the thing about France was you could always fire anybody with no justification, but you had to pay them three years' salary. So if I took you to court, I would win three years' salary. Macron, President Macron, changed all that in 2017. It started to change under President Sarkozy. He started to weaken the union power. And then President Macron, he just installed a formula for every year of service, you get like one month's salary. So now there's no, uh, you know, there's no reason to not fire people. So, you know, it's and really Macron, he's a, I don't know much about him, but he's painted uh, here by those on the left and <clears throat> the mainstream media as like some liberal or some leftist. Uh, but he's pretty he's pretty centrist. He's pretty much uh, the neoliberal uh, party line. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say neo neoliberal. Uh, he worked for one of the most powerful banks on planet Earth. Uh, he was never elected to a position. He really came out of nowhere. He was a minister under the uh, Hollande uh, government. And then he suddenly came out of nowhere, you know, financing, funding, presented a campaign. He's got lots, from he, my understanding, he's got a lot of friends in high places, right? He's pretty connected. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, you know, he... Everyone said, where did this guy come from? And he's, you know, unstoppable. And it's a neoliberal agenda. Uh, There was the tragedy in Paris, um, the terrorist attack, about three or four years. There was the Charlie Hebdo attack. You know, journalists got killed. And then after that, there was the huge attack in a nightclub. And they instituted, you know, like laws. The police can hold you for seven days without a trial. Uh, if you say anything online that is conceived as being pro-terrorism, you can be arrested, detained. So, you know, it, it's it's really chilling. You know, it has a chilling effect. And those are those are anti-free speech laws. Those are censorship laws. So, you know, when when free speech is attacked. Um, you know, and you're not allowed to speak, uh, you know, against the establishment or against the establishment's um, enemies, you know, who they call terrorists. You know, Chomsky talks a lot about, you know, terrorism is stuff they do to us. What we do to yeah. them, the violence that we do to them is anti-terrorism. And here in the United States, we have a terrorist list, which is just completely unacceptable. It should not be tolerated, where basically the executive can just pick um, state enemies and call them terrorists. Yeah. They can even pick uh, American nationals living abroad and uh, exterminate them through the drone campaign. Yeah. Obama was, yeah. uh, you know, accelerated the drone campaign. Uh, Obama is a lot of the times painted uh, as a leftist as well as a um, as a radical leftist and all that kind of stuff. He is, you know, center right. I mean, he is. Yeah. He, is uh, he was the deporter in chief. Uh, he ran this terrorist yeah. um, drone campaign. Uh, he, um, you know, expanded the Patriot Act. Uh, he's he prosecuted his administration, prosecuted more whistleblowers yeah. uh, than any other in administration history. in history. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but again, giving uh, attacking free speech, you know, is essentially giving the state the power to decide truth, you know, and um, 
you know, Julian Assange, uh, what he did was expose, you know, the crimes of the state, yeah. of corporations and, and those in high places of power. Uh, and even though, um, you know, what he exposed were, were criminal um, enterprises and, you know, criminal networks, um, you know, using the truth. Uh, was not a defense because, you know, he was deemed an enemy or maybe even by some a terrorist or uh, maybe even helping terrorists. Uh, that's another thing the Obama administration did was made it basically illegal to even offer them, uh, I think, you know, let's say, let's say the Hamas, let's say, you know, the United States government uh, labels them a terrorist organization, which I'm sure they do. Uh, if you are an international lawyer and you gave them legal advice you could be you could be yeah. called and, uh, and identified as a terrorist. So even even providing uh, professional services, um, yeah. and, and again, maybe you know, maybe these um, are bad people that are on the terror terrorist list. Maybe they're not. They don't need a shred of evidence. There's no yeah. case. There's no court system. And once you're on the terrorist list, there is no um, ability. You know, there's, there's no process to get off it. It's basically up to the executive. And a lot of times, when people are crossed off the terrorist list, that's because they're assassinated. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, all right. So we have, uh, you spoke about Julian Assange. Why was he attacked? For publishing truth, yep. not for publishing lies. And I also uh, remember uh, hearing how Chelsea Manning was in the military. My understanding is that when you are in the military, if you witness crimes, you have an obligation to report them. You know, uh, you know, the Malai uh, massacre in Vietnam, you know, those uh, two helicopter pilots, they actually landed their helicopter in between the soldiers and the people who were being, you know, killed. You, you have an obligation to stop war crimes or to report war crimes. So Chelsea Manning, you know, followed, you know, did the right thing. And, you know, Julian Assange paid, Chelsea Manning paid the price, Julian Assange paid the price. But then we have the other example of Edward Snowden. So people said Edward Snowden is a coward. He should come back to America and face the music. And Glenn Greenwald said exactly what you just said. He can't. He has no right to see the evidence. He has no right to speak to the witnesses. Uh, the trial, it's one of those FISA courts where it's military justice. Moxymoron, if there ever was one. So Glenn Greenwald said, why would he come back? It's not, it's not justice. It's not a trial. It's just, you know, shadow organizations making an accusation against you and you cannot defend yourself. All to intimidate and to stop people from acting up and speaking out. Yeah, it would be a kangaroo court. The deck would be stacked against him, and he'd probably get life in prison. Uh, you know, and I'm also uh, in opposition to the extradition uh, of Julian Assange. And as Chomsky had mentioned uh, in his defense, um, the truth is not a defense, you know, for Julian Assange, even though, uh, oh. you know, he published uh, many truthful statements and woke a lot of people up. I've also tweeted on the Pandora Papers and then after yeah, that, or I'm sorry, before that was the Panama Papers, which Panama is Papers, exposing yeah. um, just so much data. I mean, terabytes. I mean, just massive amounts of data, data leaks um, to journalists um, covering the story about um, rivers of dirty money, dark money, uh, where the world's elite, you know, kind of hoard their money in tax havens Zel around the world. Zelensky was mentioned. Zelensky uh, got implemented in that. Yep. And, um, you know, the... 
and I, someone tweeted like, um, you know, and, and remember, remember the Pandora Papers, remember the Panama Papers, and and nothing even came about it, even though you know, uh, uh, so many elites in global governments and corporations were exposed, and then someone commented, well, not exactly. You see, the journalist that uncovered it was murdered. <laughs> you know, in Mad- in, um, in um, uh, Malta, no, they, they blew they blew up a car in Malta or something. Uh, yeah, they, they blew up her car. I mean, it was a clear assassination yeah. attempt. Someone uh, in a very high position of power wanted her uh, murdered, and that was the end of that. But yeah, I mean, there was more than just her working on the case, so I'm not familiar with all the journalists uh, that were involved with it. But yeah, she was maybe the highest profile on the case, yeah. and she was uh, murdered. And then you talked about like secret courts, um, also like economic um, forums and world banks and all these uh, free trade organizations. What they're trying to do is um, get out of democratic, um, you know, processes. Uh, there's, you know, some of these big trade deals between countries, and they're called free trade. But what they actually do, and Chomsky talked a lot about this. What they actually do are investor rights agreements. They write some toothless stuff about labor and, you know, how you know you should have labor rights and uh, you know safe workplaces, all that kind of stuff. But they're completely toothless. What the world's elite want to do is to bypass democracy and uh, basically make these decisions in secret, and then get these free trade, so-called free trade deals rubber stamped by Congress and they set up these, you know, secret committees and boards where um, experts, I say in quotes, because I think Henry Kissinger described experts as those that can articulate the consensus of the ruling class. So they, again, they pick pick these quote experts and put them on these secret boardroom or put them in these secret boardrooms on these secret committees. They make up the policies that, um, you know, are put in place that impact our day-to-day lives, the lives of everyone. And then, um, you know, they get rubber stamped by Congress and secrecy, which is a complete mockery of democracy. We say, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric about democracy in the United States, but all it is is rhetoric because those in positions of power and those with concentrated wealth have never been in favor of democracy. Um, and uh, the same is for free speech. There's a lot of talk, you know, especially like Elon Musk says he's a free speech absolutist. But those in um, society with power and privilege have never been in favor of free speech. That's why Elon bought Twitter, so he can get his um, you know, point of view out there to the masses. No, and I mean, you know, uh, you know, try to try to take part in an anti-war protest or, uh, you know, a pro-Palestinian protest or a Black Lives Matter. I saw in Berlin there was like a hundred thousand people in a pro-Palestinian pot or a pro-Palestinian yeah. march. Over a hundred thousand people. I mean, there, I, I, there's people for miles. It looks like. I mean, you can't. You can't see an empty space. I mean, just so many. I mean, uh, there was a lot of nonsense about Trump's inauguration, and it looked like, you know, maybe a few thousand people there. I mean, some of these pro-Palestinian marches and protests, there's maybe millions of people. I mean, people as far as you can see. I mean, they put numbers on it. How could you actually know? But in Berlin, what I've heard, and, you know, Berlin and Europe, um, you know, Germany and, and Europe generally and France, there's this perspective that, you know, they're far leftists and all that kind of stuff. But what I read about the German police is they're forcibly trying to break up these okay. protests and you can't do it when the numbers are there with hundreds of thousands, yeah. maybe millions of people. So that's a great sign and a, and a great thing um, for the Palestinians. They are, um, you know, it's a sense Inside, it's slaughter, it's ethnic cleansing, however you want to term it. But uh, I read uh, or I retweeted the 
UN official that resigned in New York, and he yeah. said basically this is textbook genocide. I mean, look look at the yeah. definition of it, and then he talked about it in his letter. But it, yeah, I mean, good for the Palestinians. They are being wiped out. It's terrible to see in our government, the United States government, my government, uh, is funding it. I just saw some multi-billion-dollar deal, essentially, uh, you know, weapons and, and resources to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians and to essentially, um, you know, exterminate them and, and to eradicate their culture from the area. Well, I mean, what did Julian Assange say about the war in Afghanistan? It's a money laundering operation. That's it. You know, transferring more money from the 99% to the, you know, 1%. And now we see, um, you know, the war in Ukraine, Putin, the greatest threat to freedom in the world. Now, all of a sudden, we have Gaza. The Ukrainians can go to hell. Putin, we don't care about. So as long as the arms are being sold, as long as the money is being transferred, as long as we have another crisis to distract people, um, you know, it, it, it moves on. And you, you know, um, Gore Vidal called the United was it the the, um, the United States of amnesia. I mean, I talk to friends, I talk to colleagues. They have literally no memory of what happened last year or two years ago. And when you start bringing up facts. You know, it, it just goes right over, over their head. Or well, the other thing I love is when something is on television that morning, people start talking about it that day. So, um, you know, uh, I got into a, a discussion with a colleague. Uh, Putin is in Ukraine. You know, how can you justify? I says, you know, this is in February of 2022. I go, there's been a war in Ukraine since 2014. You know, where have you been for the last, you know, six, eight years? So, I mean, you know, people get programmed by the media. You can turn it on. You can turn it off. And it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, there's no perception. There's no memory. There's no context. They just follow whatever the mainstream media tells them. Yeah, yeah, the corporate media, the agenda-setting media. Uh, I'm here on my Instagram. I have an Instagram. It's not quite as popular as my Twitter, uh, but this is where I put some of my pictures here. Um, yeah, basically in uh, the Ukraine, so we got uh, a figure here. Uh, I got it from the internet, internet so it's got to be true, right? There's no way this could uh, be lost. Course. But uh, anyways, in 563 days in Ukraine, uh, war criminal Vladimir Putin, and he is, the Ukrainians are victimized, even if they have the most corrupt government in Europe and have had had the most corrupt government in Europe for, uh, I mean, years, if not decades. Uh, and of course, I did a podcast, a solo podcast, uh, yeah, the United States in 2014, I believe, uh, tried a coup d'etat to put their um, public government in power uh, in, in the I think it was done. I, yeah. I, I think that's 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 factual. Yeah, I'll tell you a story. I was I was going to Ireland. I mean, it doesn't really mean anything, but I was going to Ireland for a conference. I guess this is 2015, and I was in Charles de Gaulle Airport. Uh, you know, heading to Ireland. And when you're in the when you're traveling internationally, you can buy stuff duty free. And I like to buy Cuban cigars duty free. And I was in the duty-free shop. There were these Americans. I mean, these guys look like serial killers, man. These guys were hardcore, tattoos, bodybuilders. These guys were not playing around, man. When you look at these guys, you knew these guys were here for business. They were all online, buying alcohol, duty-free. You get it cheap. And every single one of them, because you got to give your final destination, Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. So, I mean... I have no evidence. I have no proof. But I mean, these guys look like government contractors. At first, I figured they were oil industry because they look like, you know, roughnecks 
you know, these guys were, you know, heavy duty guys. But they were all going to Ukraine. It was right around, it was like right after, you know, that uh, the coup d'etat, 2014, 2015. Uh, I think these are all facts. We had 400 FBI agents, I believe, in Ukraine a year uh, after the, um, you know, the, the Maidan you know, revolution, the, the, the coup d'etat. Um, you know, we were sending financing, we were sending uh, representatives. I mean, if, 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 if Russia was doing that in Canada or Mexico, it would be world war. Yeah. And look, I'm not going to defend Russia. I'm not going to defend Putin. You know, I won't we either. got blood on I'm, our hands. Yeah. yeah. You know, and he, and he was an idiot. He took the bait. He fell right into the trap. But, you know, the United States is, is not at all, uh, you know, innocent in this matter. And as Chomsky said, the minute they say unprovoked attack, you know it was a provoked attack. Yeah, look, the only reason you would, that's yeah. right there. That's the proof that it was provoked. That's, you, that's what Chomsky you know, said. You the best way to uh, some of the best ways to find out history and to find out what actually happened. He says this literally in one of the talks I was listening to the other day. He, he says one of the best ways to find out what actually happened is to go to the uh, government denials and read read yeah. the government denials, and then you can probably figure out what actually happened. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, the truth is there if you just know how to, you know, what perspective. Uh, to, 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 to look at it from. And, yeah, and, and Israel committing war crimes on the U.S. taxpayers' dimes. Uh, th- there's a story I, I think tweet, retweeted um, about in the Israeli, one of the Israeli presses, but it was a critical piece. And it was, uh, I think it was the Israeli presses, but it was, anyways, it was critical of the uh, Israeli government. Maybe it wasn't in the Israeli presses because those people are typically, those presses are put out of business. Uh, uh, Israel shut down Al Jazeera. But one of the techniques that they use is if there's like a bombing, let's say, of a hospital, which happened, their first uh, excuse is usually, oh, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a Hamas rocket or it was a, it was a Palestinian rocket that uh, exploded, you know, um, it was, you know, a failed rocket or something like that. And then if that excuse doesn't work and the intel is not there, then they say, well, you know, we, we bombed the hospital, or we bombed the church or the university, which was bombed yesterday. Um, but, you know, those were human shields because they're shielding terrorist organizations, um, you know, in, in, in the tunnels beneath them. So like, oh, yeah, that's a that's a great excuse to, um, you know, kill babies and incubators, nurses and doctors, because, you know, Maybe there's a few terrorists in the basement. You know what I mean? It's absurd. Well, I mean, you look at, uh, was it the, uh, the Obama administration? They bombed that wedding, uh, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. I mean, the, the United States doesn't even go through the charade. Yeah. You know, yeah, we bombed them. You know, We're above okay. international <laughs> law, so we don't, it, doesn't, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't apply. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, we don't even go through the charade of saying, oh, yeah, we thought they were dying. For the wedding, they said, ah, oh, we thought it yeah. was a meeting of terror. I would mistake a wedding for a meeting of terrorists. Right, right. And but, uh, yeah. Obama gets a free pass. So as Chomsky talks a lot about international politics, uh, he's made the comparison that it operates much like the mafia. So, for example, when the United States wants to commit a violent act uh, against another state or a foreign government, it doesn't go to the world court. It doesn't go to the U.N. You know, it doesn't go to the Security Council. Um, what it does is just miss that act because to ask for permission 
um, would to be would be to acknowledge that there is a body uh, above the United States government, and there's not. You know, the United States rules the world, uh, and, and the world is ruled essentially by force. The United States um, has the world's biggest military, the world's biggest hammer, if you will, and every problem, uh, you know, at least to the United States government and the military looks like a nail. So um, you're seeing that exactly play out um, in Russia as well. Uh, Putin has called out um, what's going on in Gaza as a war crime, uh, as crimes against humanity, and they are. Uh, but of course, he doesn't <laughs> mention the fact that he's also committing war crimes in Ukraine. So there's no principle, you know. And unfortunately, the world is ruled by force, and force usually works out. So it's probably going to work out for Putin and Russia here in Ukraine, which is, I think, a war of provocation. Uh, and I do not, um, you know, I do not except what Putin's doing in the Ukraine. The Ukrainians are um, being victimized, certainly. But I have less say in the affairs of the Russian government. I, I, uh, actually, I have none. <laughs> and, and the people actually have less uh, say in, in the violent acts that uh, Putin is carrying out, because Russia is clearly not a democracy. I mean, maybe some people inside Russia might argue uh, it is, but certainly not. It's ruled by a strong man, an autocrat. Um, but in the United States, you know, we are, at least in theory, a democracy, even though Princeton University calls, uh, in 2014, calls it an oligarchy. Um, but yeah. in, in a democracy, the, the people have more of a burden on the crimes uh, our government um, is committing. But uh, anyways, to get this back to uh, international affairs, international politics, uh, as Chomsky has mentioned, uh, it runs much like the mafia. The mafia doesn't go to the court for an order to carry out violence, you know. It just does it, you know. And it's usually not about the money. You know, if someone doesn't pay protection, it's not about the, the money. It's about sending a message. Like, if you don't yeah. if you do not do what we ask, if you don't follow orders, we're going to break your leg. We're going to rough you up a little bit. It's not about the, you know, the, the protection money. It's about sending a message to... Uh, it's allies and certainly it's enemies that if you if you cross the dawn, if you cross the master in this analogy of the United States, something bad's going to happen to you, you know, so you got to fall in line. Uh, but let's before we kind of open up more for discussion here, I did want to read um, some of the figures. So, uh, again, off the Internet, it has to be true. Uh, in the Ukraine war, uh, 563 days, uh, there were uh, 9,614 people killed. Uh, and over 17,000 injured. Uh, in Palestine, in only 25 days, 8,796 people killed and counting, and over 24,000 injured. So uh, many have called um, you know, Putin's uh, attack on uh, Ukraine much more humane than the way that the United States and its allies, Britain and France, typically fight their wars. It's much the United States... It's pretty much all-out war, you know, taking out uh, infrastructure, transportation, all that kind of stuff. And you're watching it play out uh, by Israel, who's taking it, you know, taking the play right out of the old playbook of the United States, uh, attacking hospitals, schools, churches, uh, power grids. I mean, you name it, any any war crime that they can commit, they've done it. So really, really violent uh, and just despicable uh, what we're watching play out in um, Gaza right now. And uh, I read a quote here on um, Twitter. <laughs> I forget something like, um, you know, when you take away the people's right to peacefully resist, you leave them with no choice but violence. Uh, so, I mean, Canada, I think that, that was that, President 
President, I think pres- that's a President Kennedy quote. Oh, wow. If okay. People don't have the right yeah. to speak, then yeah. violent, violent revolution is the only thing uh, left. To put this in context, I'm not going to compare Putin's crimes to Netanyahu's crimes to Biden's right. crimes. And Chomsky wouldn't crimes, either. Crimes yeah, Chomsky crimes. wouldn't either. Yeah, so I'm doing him but, a disservice by doing that. But yeah, Chomsky wouldn't do that either. But, but to put this in context, Gaza is the size of Philadelphia. So imagine 100 jets dropping bombs on Philadelphia, 100 tanks entering Philadelphia. I believe the amount of bombs that have been dropped on Gaza are equal to the tonnage of um, Hiroshima. You know, it's been two. I I saw the other day it was two two atomic bombs, the equivalent of two atomic bombs have already been dropped. And that was like a week ago. So who can who can imagine how much more that's that's, it's, it's up to now? So. So now I am not defending Hamas. You know, I'm not defending terrorists. I'm not condoning Hamas. But, I'm not condoning the terrorists that they've carried out. Certainly not. Is innocent Israelis have been killed, and I would never, I would never condone uh, the the, the of, killing of, and murdering of, of innocent people. No, yeah. But but we can put this in you know context. So um, if you ever saw the Fog of War, the documentary with uh, Robert McNamara, the uh, Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and Johnson. Uh, That's your uncle, right? Movie? Is that your uncle? <laughs> <laughs> no. Please, please, no, no relation. No, but kidding. anyway, uh, Robert McNamara wrote a book, you know, I think, uh, The Principles of War. And he said one principle is proportionality. On December 7th, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. I think 1,200 um, sailors and you know soldiers died. Mostly military personnel. Almost exclusively yeah, yeah. military personnel. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, sneak attack, unwarranted. We can get into a discussion. What, what we don't mention is there was a colony. It was, an, it was a colony, not a state, uh, yeah. that was acquired via uh, yeah. gunpoint. Uh, you know, so. Yeah. And also, we imposed uh, sanctions on Japan in 1940 which is basically an act of war, but let's leave all that aside. We so as a result of... Uh, carpet bombing of, uh, of Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. I think there's was, there was big threats of carpet bombing in the late 30s, early 40s, as tensions were rising between the U.S. and yeah. Japan, so the threat was there as well. But the point of the story is, is dropping two atomic bombs on civilians proportional to the attack on you know Pearl Harbor. So people say, well, they started it, and they got what they deserve. But, you know, McNamara says, and I believe proportionality should be, you know, a, a, a concept in politics. Uh, 9-11, 3,000 innocent men, women, and children exterminated. I mean, a horrible, horrible, horrible tragedy. As a direct result, one million Iraqi men, women, and children are dead. I mean, you know, twenty plus we years of just, the war on terrorism and, and just destruction yeah. of the Middle East for one event uh, that happened by a cell of terrorists that were not affiliated with any uh, government. I think actually they had some affiliation with Saudi Arabia, although that's not much talked about because that's one of our allies. And when we say Saudi Arabia, that's essentially a family that's robbing the rest of the yeah. country's oil rights. And I mean, I'm not an expert on 9/11, nor do I want to be. But I mean, there are. You know, uh, I think Vanity Fair, you know, respectable journalist journalism that said, I think the FBI was bugging uh, a phone in Los Angeles. There were operatives, I think in Florida, there was an operative. Money was being exchanged. So, you know, the American government had some idea. Now, uh, I heard, you know, one of the terrorists or two of the terrorists 
had CIA contacts, or CIA, they were operatives. I'm not going to go into that. But it's clear, you know, there were some red flags. And then if you saw uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, a plane left the United States with, I think, with 160 Saudi nationals, you know, no questions, you know, no, you know, no interference on, on the part of the, of the federal government. So, um, you know, yeah, so this horrible, horrible tragedy, you know, happened. And then as a result, we invade the country that had absolutely no connection, nothing to do at all. That's Um, why that's why I don't um, that's why Chomsky doesn't subscribe to conspiracy theories. And I try not to as well is uh, if there was a conspiracy theory and the government was in on it. Why would we then choose Iraq to invade? You know what I mean? If it was some sort of conspiracy or psychological operation, they didn't do a very good job of it, you know, because they should have been able to frame the Iraqis clearly and there was really no connection. I, I think it was Howard Zinn. He made a very provocative statement. He was giving a speech and someone said, you know, what about 9-11 inside job? And he said, who cares? Yeah. And I mean, it was really a, a provocative statement. And he said, who cares? And, you know, it was people were taken aback. He goes, tragedy happened, 3,000 people are dead. He says, let's look at what happened after 9-11. What was 9-11 used as, you know, the, the NDAA, uh, you know, drone warfare, war on terror, 1 million uh, Iraqi men, women, and children dead, Afghanistan, you know, destroyed, uh, threats against Iran. So, I mean, let's look at what physically happened, you know, after it. And again, this concept of proportionality. And uh, on 9-11, Iran said, we will help you. I believe the government of of Afghanistan said, we will help you. We'll try to find the people who did this. The world was united against the United States of America. The United States of America said, as you said, the mafia principle, we don't need your help. We are just going to do whatever we want. And now there's even more terrorism, more destruction, more death, um, you know, as a direct result of the United States. I think and, Bush uh, came question- said something, too. I, I'm going I to paraphrase it because uh, I, I don't want to make the exact quote, but it was, in a, it was a lecture. Uh, the Chomsky was talking about Iraq, and he quoted George W. Bush. So I'll just paraphrase what George Bush said uh, in response after 9-11. Uh, he was, you know, basically starting the old Reagan war on terrorism, just, to, you know, recycling it. Uh, since the Soviet Union was no longer an enemy of the United States, the number one enemy then became terrorism, which was nameless and faceless. And we can basically just call yeah. any violence we don't like terrorism. It doesn't have to be descriptive. Uh, by the United States definition, they are the leading terrorist state in the world. But don't take my word for it. Take Noam Chomsky. He knows this stuff a lot better than I do. But essentially what Bush said was, you know, we're going to go after terrorism. You know, we're going to go after terrorists. And uh, you can get on the side of the United States. Or you can be our enemy. So you choose. Yeah. But, and, and to get back to what you said, it's very interesting what America says. America talks about what? A rules-based order, not a law-based order. Whenever America takes unilateral actions of violence, they say, well, you have to be part of the rules-based regime. So as you said, that does not involve the United Nations or any international or the democratic uh, process, right? Yeah. So, you know, and it begs the question, who makes the rules? Like you said, the mafia has rules. The mafia doesn't have law. The mafia has rules. If you insult us, if you take money from us, you're going to pay a price. And this is what we see. And again, 
It's not about the money. <laughs> it's about sending a message. Yeah. It's about roughing people up, and it's about making sure that you don't do it again. You know. <laughs> and then, all right, so we can talk about this in a political context, but we can also talk about it in an economic context. I, I apologize. I, um, the former um, the former finance minister of Greece, uh, what's his name? The bald guy, um, uh, Vlada, uh, forget his name. A famous guy. He was the finance uh, he was a genius. He was a genius in game theory. He was an economics professor. And then after the financial crisis of 2010, he became the finance minister. He's a huge political activist. I should know his name. Uh, if you can. Yeah, he's done some talks with Chomsky. I've, I've seen some of his stuff too. Yeah. I'll look it up. So, so he made the statement that, you know, he was the finance minister. He was elected under a program of stopping austerity. Yannis Verifakis. 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 Yeah, there yeah. you go. There you go. So, I'm sure I butchered uh, and I apologize. <laughs> close enough. Yeah. But he is very vocal. He's on record. And he said, we went to the European Union with a mandate from the people. He arrived in Brussels and he was told to go into a room. This is on record, you know, you'll yeah. find this on YouTube. Yeah. He was told to go into a room and it was uh, Schwab, the German finance minister. So he goes, sit down. So he goes, what's this? And it's the ECOFIN. There's a group of finance ministers of the European Union. It's not in the European constitution. It's just some group that they just invented. So it's a troika, and, right? It's like a troika. It's a banking yeah. cartel, essentially. Uh, well, well all right. So, so you've got you've got the IMF, the World Bank, and the European Union, or you got the IMF, the Central Bank, and the European Union. But this was an internal mechanism that had no constitutional backing. So they go, you have to sign this agreement. So he goes, what's this agreement that you're going to take on more debt? He goes, how is more debt going to help a debt crisis? And they said, you don't have a choice. And Schwabel said, if you do not sign this agreement, the next one is going to be worse. And it was all threats. And uh, he even said that, uh, you know, he said, this is insanity. Why are you doing this? You're torturing us. You know, austerity doesn't work. And to get back to what you said, we're sending a signal because there were grumblings. Um, the UK was talking about leaving the European Union, which they eventually did. France, there were grumblings. Maybe we'll get out of the euro. Italy was having severe economic crises. Maybe we'll go back to the lira. And they said, this is to send a signal. Anyone who gets out of the euro, yeah. we will destroy. We will crush you. We will crush the economy and everyone in the country. And I think that's kind of ironic because I think it was like the Bundesbank, right? The German banks and some of the... German high command or whatever within the European Union that were making this uh, list of demands for the for, for Greece and, and their economy and their people, essentially. Uh, and isn't that the same excuse used for World War II? Is it the Treaty of Versailles and the economic um, conditions put uh, forth uh, onto yeah. Germany to essentially pay the costs of World War One, yeah. which destroyed their economy, which uh, led to uh, out-of-control uh, inflation? And, um, you know, essentially <laughs> allowed for a demagogue 
uh, someone to come out of the ashes and to radicalize the people and to, um, you know, scapegoat uh, the Jews and anyone else in the path of Hitler uh, in the corporate state nexus and the totalitarian Nazi system that was constructed. And then, uh, of course, they did the same kind of thing to Greece to penalize yeah. them. Uh, and who took out the debt? I mean, was it the was it the people of Greece or, you know, was it the banks and Golden the Sachs, corporations? Right, right. So the the elites take out these these. Um, loans and they make these risky investments that trash the economy and yet uh, who pays for it? The people, the taxpayers, they're there to, they're to bail them out. In fact, uh, that's what big, Too Big to Fail is all about to uh, essentially make these financial institutions, and I'm doing a solo pod on the banking system right now as I research it, but essentially to make these um, banking institutions too big to fail. Um, yeah. you know, money is out of control. There's networks and trillions of dollars of unaccountable dark money out there that we don't even know where it is in these tax havens all over the world. Um, and then, yeah, they know that if they make these risky investments that can be very lucrative and pay off, they also know that, you know, there can be uh, an externality, you know, a, a systemic um, risk that crashes the economy. But they know that, uh, you know, if the risk doesn't pay off uh, lucratively for them and it does end up crashing the economy, that the taxpayer will be there to bail them out. It's built into the system. Yeah, that's lemon lemon socialism, private profits, public losses. Yeah, um, you know the the solution to the two thousand and eight financial crisis. Um, Sweden had a huge uh, banking crisis, I think, in the in the nineties. And what they did was the government stepped in, took every single bank, split the bank in half. They made a good bank and a bad bank. Fired all the presidents, fired all the CEOs. They all lost everything. The shareholders lost everything and the bad banks were wound down. You know, the debts were, you know, people took their losses or the government, you know, intervened and you just split it. In uh, 2008, the federal government said we will pay whatever needs to be paid. Twenty nine trillion dollars was eventually given to Wall Street. No questions asked. Uh, all of this was a result of who? No strings. Bill Clinton. Either. Yeah, no, no strings. Well, also. Do whatever you want. Pay bonuses. Yeah. Normal people get money. They're means tested. You know, you got to fill out these forms. When you get, when you're on unemployment, you got to, you know, you have to subject yourself to drug testing and uh, you have to apply for so many jobs. But when they cut a check to Wall Street, it's like, here you go. And then, of course, after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, months later, after we basically cut them a check for, I don't know, a trillion dollars, who even knows these figures, um, you know, all of a sudden, uh, not much longer after the the, the, the the check cleared the account or whatever, I'm making a, a joke here because, you know, the these banks are not like household, you know, uh, they're not like households. And I, I'm kind of into the modern money theory a little bit. Maybe we can talk about it. But essentially, you know, after the smoke cleared and the check cashed, you know, they start paying themselves six-figure, seven-figure bonuses again, yeah. all thanks to the taxpayer. Oh, uh, I think it was AIB. Uh, they paid out $400 million in bonuses. So now um, I had a buddy. Uh, he was a court officer for the uh, court system of uh, New York State. They said, we're not paying contractual bonuses. We're not paying contractual raises. We're in a financial crisis. So... He had a contractual obligation with the state of New York. They said, look, it's a crisis. We're not going to pay you this money. And I think they went five, six, seven years without a raise. Wall Street, what did they say? Oh, these bonuses are contractual arrangements. We have to pay these bonuses for criminal behavior, for uh, 
you know, reckless. We could have, uh, we could have bailed know, out the banks or we could have put the bankers in jail. I mean, there's a couple of different choices. Or we could have said, like, the Greek finance minister and the people of Greece, we don't want to pay this debt. Get rid of it. Yeah. We're done. We're not paying it. You know, why? I think Chomsky brought that up. Why even pay this stupid debt? Um, yeah. I, I read a book by Thomas Piketty. He's a French uh, economist, oh, yeah. and he yeah, yeah. mentioned Nobel that yeah. Yeah, international international conferences, debt conferences. It's like a you owe them fifty billion, they owe you thirty billion. Well, you just wash it clean, and you know we'll start again. So he was talking about these international debt swapping conferences. Where I mean, I think the the system. I'm just reading. Um, I'm reading big time into the banking system, and the UK uh, something like there's three three percent of the money supply. Is physical currency, you know, and coins yeah. and and, and um, you know notes, right? Ninety-seven uh, percent of the currency is digital. It's electronic. It's on some bank database or in some computer on some spreadsheet. It's made up. It's abstract. It has no relation to the real economy, and that's the vast majority uh, of the money yeah. out there. And uh, you know, I think it, before the deregulation of the financial system, ninety-five percent. Um, of the economy was uh, related to production, you know, but since the deregulation, I think it's now like 95% is speculation and 5% uh, is, is actually have, is actually related to real, real world production of, you know, uh, goods and services, that kind of thing. Oh, I mean, when did this all start? August 15th, 1971. Nixon. You know, the uh, the Brett. Yeah. The, the Bretton Woods Accord was destroyed. The world that uh, Keynes built, and Keynes is vilified, right? If, if anybody talks about Keynes, oh, he's a socialist, he's a communist. Keynes built the world that we lived in for 30 years. Keynes is responsible for the middle class, the expansion, Europe, the United States, the post-war boom was all thanks to Keynes. In August 15, 1971, that all came to an end. The system of fixed currencies was ended. Currencies can float. And then that brings on what you said. I uh, talk about Chomsky. Chomsky said before 1971, 90% of international transactions were for investment. I want to invest money in Italy. I need lira. It's a fixed rate. I'm investing in physical production, you know, physical trade, goods and services. After 19, I think uh, by the 1990s, it had flipped. Ninety percent of international uh, currency transactions were pure speculation, and then now it, we also get back to this. You know, unelected officials. If your government is not implementing the policies that we want, we will attack your currency. And we had a, a currency crisis in Mexico in '95, in Asia '98. You know, so there'll be a run on your banks, a run on your economy. And uh, you need to impose austerity or we will destroy your economy. I mean, that's the IMF operating model, uh, you know, for years. And what they did, too, uh, with John Maynard Keynes, uh, who we're talking about here, uh, one of the architects with um, Harry Dexter White, I believe, was the other economist that kind of made up the system that led to, as it's called, the golden era of capitalism. It was a system with a lot more egalitarian wealth creation. Now it's just, you know, the new gilded age where the 1% or even the fraction of 1%, a quarter of the 1% are making all the money, while the rest of us are on a, um, you know, treadmill economy going uh, nowhere, but um, I, I was reading this or uh, watching this documentary that uh, I think it's called 97 
97% owned, which is essentially alluding to uh, 97% of currencies on a banking spreadsheet somewhere. You know, it's all electronic. It's not real world. And um, essentially that, uh, you know, the, the banking system uh, was debased. You know, we talked about what Nixon did, uh, taking it off the gold standard and dismantling the Bretton Woods system, uh, which was accelerated by Reagan and Thatcher, leading us into the new gilded age of extreme wealth inequality. I think the United States has more wealth inequality than any other industrialized country in the world. Uh, and yeah. if you go and walk around some of the inner cities uh, in the United States, they are starting to resemble, or not starting to, they do resemble um, some of these yeah. um, slums in yeah. third world uh, countries and you know, countries of the um, global south. But, uh, yeah, essentially, in, in this video, it was talking about um, every, uh, every empire as it's on its downward slide before it crashes. One of the first things it does is debase its currency. Uh, and that's what the United States did, uh, what, 50 or so years ago. And it's yeah. not very good for the world economy ever since. Well, yeah. I mean, it's been great for people in the 1%. Oh, yeah. 99% oh, well, it so it's been terrible. Right, right. Well, um, I think uh, the average length of time for a fiat currency is 300 years or you know, even for an empire. I mean, I'm not a gold bug. I'm not a big proponent of the gold standard. I mean, that brings problems uh, of its own. But the point is the, um, you know, the exchange, the, the right to, you know, exchange your debt, your dollars for gold at least acted as a break. It was right. some, you know, constraint. And once we got rid of that, I mean, you could just do whatever, you know, you could just do whatever you wanted. And the big thing about August 15th, 1971, a lot of people forget the United States of America defaulted on its debt. But because the United States of America writes the textbooks and writes history, it was never, you know, reported that way. So you loaned money to the United States in good faith, thinking that you could get, you know, gold or a mixture of gold. And then the United States said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll just give you more dollars and reprint dollars. And if you don't like it, you're an idiot for lending us money. You know, anyway. So, I mean, it was really a fundamental change in our society. And it was the beginning of modern globalization, which, as you said, we can't, you know, uh, deny, you know, uh, a couple of hundred million, you know, Chinese uh, peasants were lifted up into the middle class. You know, there were winners, but unfortunately, there were losers. And the United States of America did almost nothing to replace the industries that were destroyed in the South, the industries that were destroyed in New England. You know, uh, they, they could have offered retraining. So, you know, if you worked for a furniture uh, company in the South or a textile mill up in uh, you know New England, you were flat out of luck. So, I mean, all right, the genie's out of the bottle. We can't go back to, you know, the old days of mercantilism, but we can be doing a lot more to, you know, build a just society. We go back to the 1950s. Now, all right, you know, the 1950s were not the golden age for everybody, but you had unions, you had, uh, I think, a 90% marginal tax rate. You know, it was decided that obscene wealth was unacceptable. Um the salary between CEO and the average worker, I think it was 20 times. So when you look at post-1971 American society, you see huge problems, huge inflation, uh, you know, wages stagnated, 
uh, people, like we said, we're on this treadmill. You know, more and more people are working just to tread water. I'm just throwing this number out there, but I think like the I think it's like two to three hundred times. I mean, depends on where you look. Uh, the lowest. Three hundred. I think yeah, it's three hundred. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I like like co-ops and Mondragon. I think they they cap it at like somewhere between like five and nine times, you know, the, the highest paid yeah. wage uh, from the lowest paid wage. I mean, yeah, we definitely need a wage ceiling. Bernie Sanders said something like, uh, you know, anyone that makes a billion dollars, uh, anyone that makes over a billion dollars a year, that, that should be taxed at 100 percent. That, how's really? that even like? How's that even radical? Like, I, I mean, why don't you go lower? How about over fifty million? Does people really need to make over fifty million dollars in one year? I mean, how about a million? I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't think government and more laws is the way to solve these problems. Um, you know, and I, I definitely don't think that um, you know authoritarian government policies. You know, like I'm an anarchist uh, at heart. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's got to be some rules, regulations, but certainly, you know, taxing anyone's wealth over, uh, or not wealth, but essentially income over a billion dollars per year at a hundred percent. Like that's not at all radical to me. It shouldn't be for the majority of the population either. Hey, look, my mother is 80 years old. She's collecting three pensions. Uh, each one is a thousand dollars. So she's collecting a thousand dollars in social security She's collecting a thousand dollars from her job, and she's collecting a thousand dollars from my dad. My dad passed away. She's collecting his pension. She gives one of those pensions back to the government. She pays, you know, uh, a thirty-three percent tax rate. Oh. So my idea is, why don't you have Amazon and Elon Musk just pay the exact same tax rate my mother was paying? You know, like you said, I'm an anarchist at heart, too. I'm not looking for more laws. I'm not looking for draconian solutions. Yeah. But I think if you if you talk to a rational, caring human being, we all have some concept of justice, of fair is fair. Hey, if there's two donuts on the table, you get one, I get one. I mean, yeah. you know, we were taught these as, <laughs> as children. So but instead of you know, how it works out, I, I get... Uh, you know, the rich and powerful get one donut and then 90% of the second donut and we all fight over for the, what, 10% is the left. crumbs. You know what I mean? <laughs> fight over the crumbs. Yeah. But now you go back to the 1950s. Who was the president? Eisenhower. Republicans. The Republicans. We talked about the military-industrial complex. Yeah, I mean, he was way far to the left of Biden and Obama, not even close. Exactly. Uh, Clinton as well. But, but as a society, we made a decision, we made a choice that... Being a multi-multi-millionaire, let alone a billionaire, was not acceptable. So now you go back to World War II. At the end of World War II, U.S. debt was 250% of GDP. I mean, that's basically what Japan is at today, right? So we had a huge, huge, huge debt problem. What did the United States of America do? They expanded it even more. They went even further into debt to do what? Interstate highway system, um, uh, use um, the Marshall Plan, uh, which state. essentially was Marshall Plan. The, the taxpayers rebuilt Europe. It wasn't the rich yeah. Europeans; it was the American taxpayers that rebuilt uh, Europe. That's called again the Marshall Plan. And where did that money go? It went back to the United States. There was no industry. So the point of the no, story it's just is just a money laundering scheme, right? Yeah, essentially. But the the point of the story is. When you look at ratios, there's a numerator and there's a denominator. If you want to 
reduced debt, you can make the denominator smaller or you can make the numerator huge. Right. The United States of America never paid off its debt from World War II. That debt still exists. What did we do? We exploded the economy with massive amounts of growth because what? We were investing in human capital, infrastructure, you know, railroads to a degree, but more highways. So, so we made a huge investment and in what, ourselves. What I was looking at this in this video, I think now with the deregulation of the financial system, the money supply in the world doubles something like every seven yeah. or eight years or something like that. So there's just... Just literally, I saw a number like $21 trillion of dark money floating out there that we don't know where it is. I mean, I don't know how much $21 trillion is, but it's a lot of money. I don't think it would fit into my garage. I don't even know how much. I mean, it's it's an insane amount of money. I can't even comprehend how large a sum of money that is. But But now the problem for me is you can't have your cake and you can't eat it too, right? So you can't tell me free market capitalism is the solution, unregulated markets are the solution, but then at the same time, when I get into trouble, I need the government to, to bail me out. If you go to Wall Street, there is not one single uh, investment bank left. There is not, you know, years ago in the 70s, you had uh, 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 Drexel, you know, these banks were private uh, institutions that invested, that speculated, and when they went under, they were uh, Lee, uh, uh, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers. Today, there is not one single investment bank. They are all commercial banks. Goldman Sachs has an FDIC-insured subsidiary. All of these Wall Street, you know, uh, steroid capitalism banks, every single one of them has an FDIC subsidiary which covers the whole operation. The whole thing. Like <laughs> and like you said, we now have what? Three banks in the United States. It's uh, Bank of yeah. America, JP right. Morgan Chase, and uh, 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 there you go. So socialism for the 1%, hard free market capitalism for the 99%. That's, that's what MLK said too. So I want to reset here a little bit. Uh, I did read um, the figures uh, comparing Ukraine and Palestine. I did mention this letter from the UN official that resigned in protest. Uh, I had mentioned it, I don't know, 20 minutes ago, however long. Uh, but I just want to reread, uh, I just want to read this figure. I did post it on Twitter. It's on my Instagram. Uh, this is from, I believe his name is Craig Monagaber. Uh, I'm going to butcher the name, but Makaheber, something along those lines. But he is at the, he was a UN official in um, New York, in the United States, New York City. Uh, and he read he reads here in the bottom two paragraphs. As a human rights lawyer with more than three decades of experience in the field, I know well that the concept of genocide has often been subject to political abuse, but the current wholesale slaughter of the Palestinian people rooted in an ethno-nationalist settler colonial ideology in continuation of decades of their systematic persecution and purging based entirely on their status as Arabs and coupled with explicit statements of intent by the leaders of Israeli government and military leaves no room for doubt or debate. So essentially calling what they are doing ethnic cleansing and genocide uh, prior to he um, resigning and leaving his post uh, as a UN official. So uh, there's definitely a lot of um, popular support for the Palestinian people, but unfortunately the slaughter and genocide uh, continues. But anyways, I want to go back to the banking system. Um, basically, 
the creators of the um, post-war capitalist system, the Bretton Woods banking system, Harry Dexter White, John Maynard Keynes, some of the two most famous economists of the 20th century, uh, they had talked a little bit about um, basically workers' uh, labor essentially is constrained. So they're, they don't have easy access over borders. They can't just uproot themselves. I mean, they can. You have, and I have as well. Yeah. It's hard for people to uproot themselves. They have friends, families, connections to the local community, maybe where they're born and raised. So it's not quite as easy uh, for workers to uproot themselves and to travel over borders. What's easy, though, is to travel money over borders and wire uh, exchanges and all that kind of stuff. Um, And what you need to combat uh, sometimes what's called flight of capital or a virtual Senate which can bypass essentially the democratic process is you have to, you have to regulate it a little bit. Um, and whether you want to tie it into uh, a gold commodity, you know, that sort of thing, or whether you want to make other limitations of it, um, you know, it's a good thing, I think, to put limits on capital because, it, again, it can easily be transferred over borders. Some of these transactions in Wall Street have turnaround times of, you know, days, weeks, minutes, seconds, uh, especially with the speculation as it's continued to rise. So in order to combat, um, you know, labor, a labor force that's, um, you know, continues to be marginalized in this global uh, economic system, you have to put limits on, um, you know, cap- capital and, you know, you got to regulate it a little bit. And that's what I think, again, John Maynard Keynes and Harry Dexter White tried to do. But essentially since 1971, uh, with Nixon and uh, accelerated by Reagan and Thatcher, the entire uh, financial system has been deregulated and uh, I guess the core of the these financial institutions are uh, speculation, and uh, I think the—I mean, Chomsky has said it, and I, I'll agree with him. I mean, I'm, and I'm no economist, although I do like to read economics books and literature. Uh, these predatory, these financial systems and institutions, I should say, um, they're predatory. Um, they have almost no. They provide almost no real value uh, to production. Um, you know, in the in the economy. The joke, no... the joke is. The last contribution that Wall Street made to society was the ATM machine. That, I mean, that was the last positive contribution to society. Yeah. If you look historically, Wall Street made up, I think, 5% of S&P 500 you know, profits. Now I think it's 40%. It's pure speculation with no value uh, to society. To get back to what you said about capital controls, I remember reading that South Korea had the death penalty for capital controls. That when they, after the war, they were trying to build their economy, you know, they were you know, the Asian tiger, and that if you tried to take Asian money tiger. out of the country, you could you could get the death penalty. I believe Chile under um, Pinochet yeah, had Pinochet. capital controls. China to a degree. So, I mean, you know, there is, uh, you know, an argument. Precedent, yeah. But now, yeah, pre- precedent. But now we get back to the fraud, the complete fraud, that um, uh, free market capitalism is. If you look at Margaret Thatcher, right, the Iron Lady, we're going to break unions, we're going to attack people on the dole, you know, these lazy... I think she said we, there is no society, there's just citizens, yeah, there's, there's no just more consumers. Yet. Yeah. Great, perfect. If you look at uh, government spending as a part of GDP in the United Kingdom from when Thatcher came into power to when Thatcher left, it was the exact same. The government made up the exact same proportion of the economy, but what changed? The right people were getting the money now. 
So instead of, you know, families and uh, single mothers and pensioners, the money was going to, you know, their equivalent of Wall Street, you know, the, the city. So it's a complete fraud. It's a complete scam. The 2008 housing crisis could have been solved overnight. You buy every single mortgage and you burn it. That would have cost $2 trillion. But that's communism. That's socialism. So what did we do? We gave $29 trillion, no questions asked, to Wall Street to do whatever they could want with it, uh, acquire other banks, become even bigger, pay out bonuses, no strings attached. So once again, this fraud of free market capitalism, it's socialism for the top 1%, hard you know, economic realities for the 99%. And I think we are at the breaking point. I do people too. are suffering. You know, people are too. really hurting. You know, I've got, um, I've got. A step not, probably not up. us. I mean, we're we're professionals. I we're mean, in. I'm in the world's largest superpower. You know, you're you're. It sounds it sounds like doing really well for yourself. Uh, but I'm struggling. No, no doubt about it. I mean, I'm in I'm in student debt and all that kind of thing. I, it might be a lifelong process for me. But I'm definitely entrenched within the within the middle class, and I'm still struggling a little bit. I couldn't even imagine, you know, people uh, working two, three jobs, Uber Eats, just yeah. trying to put food on the table. So uh, for there's definitely people uh, way less fortunate, you know, than than both of us, and that's who I'm trying to fight for. Exactly. I mean, if you're a human being, you know, and as a human delegate, I can see single mothers making minimum wage, trying to survive. But uh, I, I look, you know, when we talk about, oh, how, look, I got a stepdaughter, she's married, she has two kids, she's struggling to put food on the table. You know, we have to help her out whenever we can. You know, the government is not giving uh, working uh, people anything over here. You got to struggle. She's a salesperson. She's got targets. She's got monthly meetings. Capitalism is capitalism. All right, in France, We've got a good education system. We've got a good healthcare system. So we don't have that to worry about. But hey, man, you got to get up in the morning. You got to make your sales quota. You got to produce. And if not, you're out. So we're all on the treadmill. Yeah. And yeah. As far as some people might think, you know, again, Europe is some, you know, socialist utopia. It's certainly not. There's a lot of problems in Europe and it's, you know, part of the capitalist global economic system. So everyone is just trying to survive within this crooked uh, system. Of course, though, it's called capitalism, but what's called capitalism in in theory, I should say, has never actually been tried. In a true capitalist system, businesses would be allowed to fail. You know, when they make risky investments that don't pay off, they wouldn't be bailed out by the taxpayer with corporate welfare. So again, what you have and what you've mentioned uh, is a system where you have socialism for the rich and powerful and capitalism or rugged free markets for everyone else. And again, the welfare state and the safety nets are being dismantled in the UK by Thatcher and uh, is continues to be accelerated and attacked from the right by the Tories in the United States, you know, even Clinton and, uh, you know, uh, the current president, uh, Biden has mentioned, you know, trying to cut uh, social security uh, and Medicare. And that's the funny thing, um, you know, about like uh, social security. Um, they talk about, um, you know, 70 years in the future or something like that, that there might be a, a budget shortfall, um, when in reality, uh, the capitalists are so concerned 
with the next quarter. They can't see, um, you know, farther than four months into the future in terms of how they manage the the corporate system. But all of a sudden, as it deals with Social Security, all all of a sudden there's a big problem 70 years in the future that we have to address. It's just ridiculous. And plus, Social Security was fully funded. It was in a surplus. What did we do? We took that money to bomb other countries, uh, to do whatever we wanted. And when you look at the Congressional Budget Office, the projections, it's sustainable. Nobody's going bankrupt. It's just that we choose to go bankrupt. We choose to make horrible decisions about the future of the country. Uh, You know, no investment. We've got billions of dollars for war, to murder women and children. We've got nothing for our, you know, domestic, um, you know, uh, agenda. And to get back to what you said about, you know, free market capitalism, the United States loves to give instructions to the third world. Yeah. You should just give us yeah. your commodities. Uh, Michael Parenti always says, oh, yeah. Africa, Africa is a rich continent. It's just that we're stealing all, you know, the wealth. You don't go to colonize poor countries, you colonize rich countries. So Chomsky tells the interesting story that Adam Smith, you know, the creator of capitalism, was alive when America won her independence. Adam Smith was Scottish. The Scots and the English have a a special relationship. There's some, you know, hard feelings there. So Adam Smith actually had a soft spot for the United States. The United States broke away from England, the master, colonialism. And Adam Smith gave instructions to the United States of America. He said, you are rich in resources. You should send your cotton, your lumber, everything to England where we will add value and manufacture it into finished goods. What did the United States of America say? No, we're going to impose tariffs. The United States of America did every single thing that it would bomb a country today if it did, America said, no, we're not going to have free trade. We're going to have tariffs. We're going to protect our industry. We're going to develop our industry. And, you know, as a result, the United States of America, by 1870, became a world superpower. And by 1900, she was, you know, unrivaled. So free markets for everyone else, free market capitalism for everyone else. For us, we're going to take a different route. Yeah, for Free markets uh, for thee, but not for me. And uh, you know, what Adam Smith kind of said was, uh, you know, in his uh, expose or whatever on capitalism or economics, the wealth of nations, you know, the country should focus on their competitive advantage. So, you know, in the United States during our development, um, you know, if we didn't become a superpower and gain independence from Britain – uh, and we followed the again the course of action that we um, implement or essentially uh, force down the throats of those in the global south. Our number one export or our number one exports would still probably be, uh, as you said, cotton, timber, yeah. maybe beaver Fish. pelts. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. you know I, I'd be I'd probably be in uh, you know maybe the northern peninsula of Michigan somewhere hunting beaver right now instead <laughs> of <laughs> you'd be in the the tanning the tanning business. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, let's talk about, so the redistribution system, uh, essentially that's what governments do in the capitalist society. Uh, in a socialist uh, society, I think what you would do is redistribute um, wealth from the rich to the poor. That's the way I think it should function. Uh, I don't really like, uh, you know, 
governments or states anyways. I think in the long run, I want a classless society with no government. I'm not a Marxist, but I think you said something about that. I consider myself an anarcho-syndicalist, and I have Rudolf yeah. Rocker's book behind me, anarcho-syndicalism. Uh, but yeah, essentially... Um, in a capitalist society, redistribution is from poor to the wealthy, you know, and that's what, again, Thatcher and Reagan tried to do. Uh, and, you know, Macron, which we talked about earlier in the podcast, they tried to um, increase the retirement age for pensioners in, in France by two years. And essentially they tried to burn down the city and, you know, protest it. And it was, it was very forced, for, forceful and call to action of many and the masses went out there and, and protested. I watched it on social media because, of course, in the United States, that kind of stuff isn't talked about. We don't want to no. – We don't want to. The, the mass media doesn't want to show us that kind of stuff. You know, people standing up to the, uh, the global order, you know, the establishment, uh, the capitalist, uh, you know, order essentially, uh, and, and, and protest. They don't want us to know or see that. So I saw videos and you know, whatever I could, you know, pick up from the internet. But you maybe were there firsthand in France. What was going on with that? Yeah, so I mean – Yeah, no – yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, I fully participated in, uh, you know, in the marches and the protests. So uh, it was organized by, uh, you know, the unions. There's five national unions in France. So uh, once, I think once we were doing them weekly, then they were doing them monthly. And it was just to have a presence. But now, you know, my personal opinion, violence is not the answer. Violence is not the solution. Sadly, it takes violence usually for governments to react, but you know I'm I'm not going to go down that road. Yeah. So we the, the the unions it was for the most part peaceful public protest. There was a friendly relationship with the police. The police in France are a little bit different than the police in the United States. There's racism. There's injustice. But you know the police over here will kind of cut you a slack. They will cut you. So when the union and the police are unionized as well. So there was a friendly camaraderie. You know, we respected them. They respected us. But then like everything else, you know, you've got elements of society that, are, you know, they, they, they feel that they're not being uh, listened to. They're excluded from society. And, you know, they call them anarchists. I don't think they're anarchists. But, yeah, so you had, you know, younger kids, university kids, high school kids, you know, you, you know, break and a lot of times those are people on the right. You know, a, a lot of times yeah. those are people on the conservative side of things that are against what the left is trying to do. Yeah. And they cause violence and property destruction yeah. and all that sorts of things um, to make the left look bad. You know, and, exactly. and when things turn violent or, you know, when there's fires and, and looting and all that kind of stuff. The right loves it. The right eats it up because it, they can use it then yeah. um, to essentially exactly. make, um, you know, to to make the, the left look bad and to make them look like, quote, anarchists. But again, if you study any anarchist yeah. theory, you know that it has nothing to do with chaos yeah, or exactly. violence or disorder. It's, yeah. I mean, I want an, I want an anarcho-syndicalist society where there's democratic institutions that, um, you know, are essentially loosely affiliated throughout the world. And then we can kind of get rid of these nation states and these standing armies and then the society can be kind of structured around democratically um, managed and organized institutions and hopefully around the local communities and not these not this globalized form of capitalism where essentially corporations dominate every single facet of our lives. I mean, there's, there's a simple, whenever someone says, what's the solution? The solution is simple. Democracy. Let people yep. run their lives the way they want to run it. 
let communities, let people vote, let people decide. Live your life the way you want to live it. Why should I come up with some I, I can't stand uh, Joe Rogan. I mean, he's essentially right-wing media uh, masquerading as like an independent. Um, but uh, I used to listen to him, and I, I definitely like some of his science guests. I don't listen to him anymore. But I did see an interview on Reddit where he was talking with um, – it was a, a leftist. He was a he was a, a drummer or a musician of some kind. He sounds like a sounds like a little bit of a leftist. Certainly not a, certainly not a political radical. Uh, I forget his name, but uh, anyways, uh, but he was basically the argument was you know uh, he he was kind of arguing Reggie Watts. That's the guy, Reggie Watts, I believe, okay. he's a musician. Oh, he yeah, was yeah, arguing yeah. Um, you know in opposition, saying you know the, the the problems every pretty much every problem in the world is created because of capitalism and greed and wealth. And I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. And then Rogan cuts him off and says, but what's the alternative? Just to have a dictator solve everything? I don't want that. No, that's not the only other alternative. Just to have a dictator in power. There's millions and thousands of other alternatives. What those in power uh, want you to believe is there's no other alternative. Like, it has to be this way. And certainly, you know, uh, Joe Rogan's got a lot to lose. He's got that $100 million contract from Spotify. So certainly he doesn't want any leftist ideas out there like, oh, maybe the rich and powerful should pay more in taxes. Because guess what? When you have a $100 million Spotify contract, you're one of the people that we're targeting, buddy. You know? Well, I mean, and so, yeah, I mean, for my money, the solution is, you know, democracy. And uh, I don't know if you ever read uh, George Orwell, um, Homage to Catalonia. Catalonia. I I haven't read it. It's on my nightstand. I'm going to read it soon. Yeah. You you can read it in an afternoon. Yeah. And he talks exactly about this, the anarchist movements in Spain during the the Civil War, the Republican War. Spanish Civil War. And he talks about, I think it was uh, Barcelona, the town of Barcelona, yeah. where how it was a true anarchist society, uh, you know, communal democracy. People did what they wanted. There was no violence. There was no. We were, they were all equals. They were all equals. I, equals. I part of it where like, you know, the shopkeeper was walking down the street and made eye contact with the taxi driver. And he said something like, you know, we're all equals here. We're on the same level. Yeah. You know? So, you know, it was an anarchist society where people were making their own decisions, living their lives as they wanted, running society as they wanted. What changed? The Soviets. Yeah. The Soviets hijacked the movement. And Orwell says when he came back to Barcelona, when the Russians, the Soviets were running it, people were saying, sir, madam, there was a hierarchy. Um, Everyone had to know their place. And basically the Russians, the Soviets, destroyed this, you know, anarchist movement. So we do have examples of where, when you read the Russian Revolution, one of the most peaceful, nonviolent events in human history. I think uh, 11 people died. You know, the the czar was out of power. They had the bread riots. That's like 15 Uh, minutes in Gaza. You know what I mean? That's like 15 (laughs) minutes in Gaza. So... So, I mean, the Russian Revolution, a peaceful event. People set up um, Soviets, which were worker combines, worker cooperatives. You had a provisional government. You had a democratic provision, um, provisional uh, government. There was a parliament. What changed? Lenin. Lenin showed up. No, 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 no. We got to get rid of this. We need the vanguard of the people. 6,000 people died. Uh, you know, uh, Reign of Terror, the NKGV, uh, and that was when, but, you know, you had this period, I'm not exactly sure, I think it was from October to April, like this, this six-month period where people were living their lives and engaging in trade and, 
And no, 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 that's all got to go. Now we're going to have a top-down imposed system, uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat, whatever you want to call it, or people's... Yeah, the workers' councils and the unions and the federations and all that kind of stuff, that uh, bottom-up working-class organization and democratic order, that was all dismantled by the Bolsheviks and Lenin, and he's an autocrat, he's a dictator. There's a lot of people that call themselves Marxists and Leninists, but yeah, they're not on my side. I mean, compared to the capitalist side, I mean, sure, but I I don't want to be ruled by a vanguard party. I don't want to be ruled by a capitalist order. I don't want to be ruled by the Nazi party. No gods, no masters. That's my point. I say that at the end of every episode. And... So we go back to the Spanish Civil War. It was the first time in history where the United States, England, France, Nazi Germany, uh, fascist uh, Italy, and uh, communist Russia and the Catholic Church, the Soviet Union, all came together to destroy the seeds of an anarchist or democratic uh, movement. So, I mean, it's power, whatever you want to call it. Chomsky says there's no such thing as capitalism. There's no such thing as communism. Yeah. It's state-directed economies, yeah. and they run it the way they – all right, certain governments give you a little bit more freedom. Others don't. But look, it's right. always going to be top-down. Where's the where's the power in society? I mean, Chomsky talks that a, a lot. You know, in, in America and in a capitalist or what's called a capitalist society, it comes from the business classes. You know, these executives, the CEOs, the wealthy, the powerful that own all the stocks that essentially own um, America and own the world. That's where the party, the power is, and concentrated wealth and power. And essentially, they um, buy politicians to do their bidding to to um, kind of uh, you know make sure their agenda is accomplished. Uh, but, um, you know, I think what Trump showed us is the oligarchy, you know, people part of the rich and powerful class that own the world. And obviously he's seen some trouble now, but, um, you know, I don't think he's going to serve any jail time. And, uh, yeah, he's right now, I think it's a toss up if he would run for reelection. I think that's pretty much sums up American democracy. We have two of the most hated uh, presidential candidates of all time, and yet they're probably going to battle for <laughs> They're probably going to have a rematch. It's disgusting. Um, but, yeah, what, what Trump showed me was that members of the ruling class and the oligarchy, they're even willing to cut out uh, the middle class, or to cut out the middleman, and essentially yeah. cut out politicians uh, to do their bidding, and they're just willing to do it themselves. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, People in France always say, what's going on? Like, Biden is going to be 80. Trump is 76, 77. Like, is, you know, is that a democracy? You have just these old people? And I always say. Here's you know, my thing, too. I don't think no rules. Like, should we just say, oh, if you're over the age of 75, you can't run? Like, is that, that's not democracy. But, you know what I mean? Putting more but, rules in place, right? But, but the point of the story, I, I, you know, when I was, I was in high school in the 1980s, and you had these uh, Soviet leaders – one guy was there for like five weeks. He dropped dead. I think in one year, they had three different leaders. These guys were like late 70s, early 80s. And I said, the United States, it's like the dying days of the Soviet Union. The system is corrupt. They're just going to install some puppet. Biden is a, is a dream. He follows orders. He'll do whatever they tell him to do. Trump, the only problem with Trump is he doesn't follow orders. That's why the system hates Trump. What did Trump do? Trump gave a tax break to billionaires. That was the only thing he did was give a tax break to billionaires. This guy's draining the swamp. So, but Trump doesn't play by the rules. Trump doesn't follow orders. That's why Trump has to go. 
if Trump was somewhat reasonable as a human being, yeah. he would be a godsend for the, uh, you know, totally. the and Yeah, the, the, the working class here in America just seems to love Trump and eat everything uh, up that he says and does. But what they don't realize is his policies kick them in the face the minute he uh, stepped foot in the White House. Yeah, but look, it's like the funny jail guard. I'm in prison. I'm never getting out. And there's this one jail guard who makes fun of the warden, who makes fun of the system. Hey, man, that's the guy I'm backing. So do you want the jail warden? Or do you want the jail guard <laughs> right. that uh, that bangs on the gates? Or do you want the jail guard that makes jokes? And that's where we're at. Right. I'm screwed. I'm never going to have a future. Hey, at least Trump will stick him in the eye and make fun of him. Make and fun of his jokes, right. And, any, hey, and if they hate Trump, then I like Trump. That's my guy. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the one thing. Yeah, like they're, they're the people that vote for Trump, they don't necessarily like his policies. They just hate the Democrats or the so-called liberals. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm an anarchist, so I'm an enemy of the communists, of the capitalists, of the so-called Western democracies, of the Nazis, of the fascists. So as an anarchist, you know, we don't we don't have any allegiance. We just have allegiance if, to the people. But uh, I, I, yeah, if I want voting to if voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think that was that Emma Goldman that said that. Luxburg, uh, Goldman, yeah, Emma Goldman. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, in, in terms of like um, the Soviet Union and the capitalist society, where does power come from in the United States and the capitalist, so-called capitalist society? It's the business classes. In the Soviet Union, the power centers is the vanguard party, uh, the bureaucrats, you know, the commissar class. Those are the people with all the wealth and power. So the only thing that changes uh, is, you know, where the power centers lie. But, yeah, I mean, the United States is more of a democratic society, certainly, than Soviet Union Russia, which Chomsky calls, you know, a dungeon, uh, and certainly more so than the modern Russian state, although there's a lot of problems with the so-called American democracy, as, again, I quote this all the time, Princeton called it an oligarchy, where essentially 90% of the population is disenfranchised, and the top 10, and the, certainly the top 1%, essentially, they're the ones that form policy, and they pretty much get anything they want. So even looking at the Palestinian, um, you know, kind of the saga going on there in Gaza, 66% of the United States population wants a ceasefire. So what do we do? Give uh, Israel tens yeah. of billions of dollars yeah. to uh, yeah. carry out ethnic cleansing. So, uh, yeah, again, it's not it's not democracy. But hey, we're getting near the end here. I'm going to go see a uh, Scorsese film. I think it's about twelve okay. hours long. <laughs> so I'm going to yeah, the next day and a half I'll be in the movie theater. But yeah, it should be a decent movie. I don't I don't see too many movies, but every once in a while I like to go out and yeah, see yeah. a flick or two. But um, yeah. Tom, we should get together soon. We should do this more often. Do you have? Oh, uh, I want to bring up some modern monetary theory stuff. Uh, is that in your wheelhouse at all? Do you want to comment on that at all, or maybe we can do that the next uh, podcast? I mean, I look. When it comes to economics, I usually find myself on the side of Paul Krugman. Now I know Paul Krugman is damaged goods. He's a vote blue, no matter who guy, and he's you know he's got his blinders on. The Biden economy is the best economy in the world. But when you talk, when you listen to Paul Krugman talk about economic theory and things like this, I usually find myself on his side. The, the thing about monetary, you know, the, the MMT guys, it's really hard to nail them down to what they think, what they believe. It's, it's, it's a moving target. It is, yeah. I'm not going to discredit it. I'm not going to, you know, badmouth it. But it's very difficult to get an MMT guy to state clearly, you can talk to a, Fr a Friedman guy, you can talk to a Keynesian guy, um, you know, uh, 
Minsk. You know, the, you know, you can talk to the Austrians and you'll get what they tell you, what they you know believe. A Marxist, you know, you can talk to these people. An MMT guy, you can never really seem to nail them down to what they think or what they believe. So that would be my only okay. you, know, you know criticism of that. Let's get into yeah, I mean, let's, let's, yeah, let's do some economic stuff. Uh, Chomsky has said, I mean, I think the soft sciences versus the hard sciences, uh, certainly economics is a soft science. Uh, anytime you're describing, you know, people and their actions and behaviors, you already know that most of that stuff is completely a mystery, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely it's sociology. Some, yeah, there's some there's some good um, there's some definitely some good theories out there, and I read a lot of economics, certainly more uh, left wing economics than the and in, 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 you know I think the establishment the economic theory generally is pretty conservative. There's not much room for new ideas out there, so that's why I guess the MMT stuff appeals to me. Although I don't oh. think it's the best thing um, since sliced bread. But I, I like to quote Chomsky on this one. Uh, it pretty much he says like any any economist will tell you if you give them the conclusion you're looking for, they can make you a model that'll yeah. show that you know what right. i mean and the uh the the greek uh finance ministry yeah we yeah. don't uh we, we 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 disregard time we disregard you know we, we disregard all of these real life things and here's your model you know and yeah, uh, and, right. yeah. so you're back into yeah you're not you're not the real world when you start to get deep into economic yeah. models and economic theories you know you're no longer in the real world so, all right, exactly. Tom, it was a pleasure. Again, we'll catch up again. Uh, is there anything right, you want geez. to say here? Any parting shots? Uh, where can people find you? I found you on Twitter. We've been uh, mutuals or f- Twitter friends or whatever, yeah, yeah. I guess, ex-social for a while now. But uh, go ahead, the um, stage is I'm yours if you want to talk CF, about um, Yeah, I'm on uh, CFDTSB uh, on Twitter. CFDTSB on Twitter. That's my union um, uh, account. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's tough. You know, people lose hope. But, uh, you know, if you stay organized, if you stay true, I believe that, you know, if you have a good faith discussion, a good faith argument with anyone, you can always find some common ground. More unites us than divides us. And, you know, hey, just live the life as best you can and uh, try to help people wherever you can. And, uh, you know, things get better. Uh, if, if we if we stay in it together for the long for the long, you know I've been able to make positive improvements in my workplace through you know working with people building uh, bridges. We look at Amazon, uh, you know they're now unionized. So you know it's hard, it's a struggle, but you know if we keep our faith, if we hold true to our uh, ideals, we can have a positive uh, impact. Doctor Tom McNamara, PhD, coming to us from Wren, uh, France. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate uh, my mom, your time. <laughs> my mom, my mom would like the fact that you called me doctor, so you made her day. Let's All catch right. up again. Thanks so much. Have a great Cheers. afternoon. Enjoy Bye-bye. yourself. Cheers. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusion. I also want to thank my special guest, Tom McNamara, for a great discussion on working class politics, capitalism, and the global world order. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out. <laughs>